Dotnet Rocks episode 968 with guest Bob Martin. Recorded live Monday, March 31st, 2014. .NET Rocks is brought to you by Franklin's Net, developing the next generation of apps for touch, motion, gesture, and sensor input. Online at franklins.net. And now, here are Carl and Richard. Thank you very much, and welcome back to .NET Rocks. Carl and Richard, back here for another hour. This is a geek-out show with a not-typically-geek-out uh, guest. I think it's the first time we've actually had uh, Uncle Bob over the Skype. We normally interview in person. That's yeah, true. correct. <laughs> that is true. Uncle Bob's here via Skype, but um, we I actually have uh, I don't usually do better know frameworks for geek out shows, but you know today's a little bit different. So oh. roll the music, folks. <laughs> All right, what do you got? Well, since you guys are going to... I'm afraid. I just wanted to say that. (laughs) Well, since you guys are going to talk about interstellar space travel, and I'm basically going to have an out-of-body experience while you (laughs) do that, uh, I'm probably going to get a little bit thirsty. So uh, if you go to tinyurl.com slash thirsty in space, you'll see what I'll be making for myself uh, as I travel out into the nether regions of the atmosphere. Oh, no, and not into tang. space. Yes, it's tang. <laughs> Six quarts of tang. But just a warning, kids, don't go to Google and uh, search for tang, okay? Because <laughs> things that you did not expect may come up, especially in Google Images. Just oh, saying. No. I don't even want to know. I'm not even going to look. <laughs> That's just Six what quarts of tang. Tang, uh, for those who weren't around in the 70s, was the astronaut drink. Yeah. Did you ever drink any of that stuff? Oh, oh hell yeah. no. <laughs> My mother wouldn't let me near that stuff. I used to drink it all the time. One spoonful in a glass of water. Yeah, so orange drink incarnate. There you go. The original orange drink. Citric acid and sugar. Yeah, right. And orange coloring. And orange coloring. Yeah, there you go. And not a natural orange color either. Just that slightly fluorescent, yeah, this is the color of your insides now kind of color. (laughs) Well, Richard, uh, is anybody talking to us today? Absolutely. Hey, I grabbed a comment off of show 908, and that's the one, the geek out we did on asteroid mining, which did get into building spacecraft. Mm -hmm. And that's exactly what James Cuthbertson talked about. He said, great show, guys, a real mind bender. The idea of the Earth-Mars cycler orbit that Richard was describing has an additional advantage. Since it is launched from space, the craft could be much heavier. The heavy metals that could be mined from asteroids would be ideal for creating shielding in the spacecraft from the gamma radiation that was mentioned at the beginning of the show. That would allow humans to ride the spacecraft without being exposed to dangerous radiation. That material would also shield the alpha radiation quite easily, but the gamma ray shielding will need to be in a higher atomic number. Didn't we mention that in the show? Or was that just a a conversation we had afterwards? I think it's a conversation we had afterwards. And it's one of the points I made to James when I commented back to him, which was, dude, you know, you're exactly right. I don't know why I didn't emphasize this more, that the most prevalent metal in asteroids around the solar system anyway is nickel iron. 
So why wouldn't you use that to build your spacecraft? As long as you can actually accelerate because the spacecraft will be heavier. And not only is that just naturally a denser material, so it's going to be more protective, it's also a ferrous material, so you can actually put a field on it. The only reason we build spacecraft out of aluminum is because it's light, so it's cheaper to raise from uh, the surface of the planet. Mm. If we stopped doing that, we would not be using aluminum. Plus, aluminum is not that easy to come by up in space anyway. So it's very unlikely to be a material use if we actually start manufacturing spacecraft up in space. Right. Uh, but James, thanks so much. Great point. Uh, really appreciate uh, your contribution there. And I'm sure we're going to go even further on this with uh, with Uncle Bob. So a .NET Rocks mug is on its way to you. And if you'd like a .NET Rocks mug, just write a comment on the website at .NETrocks.com or on any of our mobile apps. We've got them for iOS, Android, Windows Phone 7 and 8, and Windows 8. And those apps were built by Diatom Enterprises who'd love to build you an app. Just go to diatomenterprises.com. And for kids who are listening in science class, this is actually a show about software development, but uh, we're we're taking a break and talking about uh, interstellar space travel and other things today with Robert C. Martin, a.k.a. Uncle Bob. But he's been a software professional since 1970 and an international software consultant since 1990. But over the last 40 or so years, he's worked in various capacities on literally hundreds of software projects. In 2001, he initiated the meeting of the group that created Agile Software Development from Extreme Programming Techniques and served as the first chairman of the Agile Alliance. He's also a leading member of the worldwide software craftsmanship movement, Clean Code. Welcome back to the show, Bob. Oh, that sounds awfully impressive, doesn't it? Well, it is impressive. <laughs> you, uh, you are a thought leader in, oh, yeah. in our business and should oh, yeah. be recognized as such. <laughs> yeah, well, I do like to play with my toys. Nice. Yeah. <laughs> uh before we get into space, is there is there anything on your mind in the software world that you want to talk about? Oh, you guys did that interview with what was his nose? Um uh, Alan, Alan Stevens. Stevens. Yes, I yeah. figured you might want to comment on that. I, I did. I wanted to comment on that. I put a, a comment on the on the website too. Um I, you know, it was a little disappointing because he was he was very negative about craftsmanship, um, and apparently really hadn't understood what the craftsmanship movement was about. Because it was very interesting in the um, in the second half of the show, he went on to start talking about what he thinks is important, and he started mentioning design and how design is important and the dry principle, and the separation of concerns. And that's, you know, heart and soul of the software craftsmanship movement. So mm-hmm. it was it was uh, disappointing for me to hear the, the negative comments at first, and then all of a sudden he's talking about all the stuff we believe in. Right. There is this, this thought or this meme that's cycling out there that software craftsmanship is all about fiddling and fussing over your code and getting everything absolutely perfect and ignoring the customer and ignoring business problems. And that's just not the case. You know, software craftsmanship is about business value and, and being able to take pride in the work that you do to produce business value. And Alan is not the only guy who's made this statement or this mistake. Uh, a lot of folks have, and they 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 cast the software craftsmanship community as a uh, an elitist group, a monoculture, mm-hmm. and it's just not the case. So, yeah, there's my gripe. 
There you go. Well, you know, the, the, the salient point that he did make was the vagueness of the manifesto was uh, one of those things that, because of its vague language, can be hijacked and people can project their own meanings onto it, which is kind of essentially what he did, right? Yeah, well, that, that does happen. And it's happened to Agile and, and happens to, it happens to anything that people like. Yeah. Uh, so you you may recall back in the 70s, there was the structured movement. Right. Which came out of structured programming and structured design and structured analysis. And then shortly after that, the word structured had to be in any software product because it was synonymous with good. Right. Well, that happens. Yeah, we have the same problem with the word cloud right now. <laughs> <laughs> and we had it with SOA before that. Yes. Yeah, so, uh, yes. I mean, you know. <laughs> and Agile. And uh, agile, of course. Agile. Of we're course, agile. agile. Everybody's agile. Oh, we're agile. And DevOps, right, Richard? DevOps. Yeah, that's the pylons happening with DevOps. Heck, I can't stand the pylon on the letter I. <laughs> <laughs> I beacon. Yeah. You know, I note Iraq. Come on. Yeah, 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 yeah. And then everybody thinks that if it's got an I in front of it, Apple must own the patent somehow. You yeah, they they own that letter. <laughs> so I have a recording studio. This is my I maracas. <laughs> because you're listening to them in an MP3. They're I maracas. I maracas. There you cost go. Cost three times as much as regular maracas. Well, I am an I bob. I bob. There you go. All right. Well, let's. Uh, I get back to the task, yeah. the the topic at hand, which is uh, space travel. This is something that we started talking about on a tangent. In at NDC in London last fall, yeah, and uh, it, the real conversation happened after we turned off the recorder, uh, and you guys just went to town, which was really cool. And we've decided we should um, uh, record a, a geek out on it. Yeah, that was a recap of um, a conversation that we had had at the bar the night before. <laughs> a fair bit of bourbon involved with that, I think. So this will be the third time that you've had this conversation. This time we're sharing it. At, at least the third time. You know, one of the reasons that I was so uh, wound up on the topic is I was putting together the notes for the Asteroid Mining Show. And, ah. you know, when you're trying to get ready to talk for an hour on a subject like that, and Asteroid Mining, you know, ever since Planetary Resource and so forth, it's, it's always been a very near and dear topic anyway. I'm grabbing everything I can find on that. So, you know... I didn't mean to to drive the conversation that direction, Bob, but I didn't look like you were suffering all that much anyway. It was a, that was a lot of fun over a fair bit of scotch. Oh, no, that was great. We were talking about that. We were talking about uh, thorium plants. Yep. And we went all over the place on that. Uh, speaking of thorium plants, I believe it's the Chinese now have um, upped their game with the a thorium nuclear plant. And what is it? They're giving themselves 15 years now? Yeah, they're, they're shortening the time schedule. Well, they're the only ones really mining thorium anyway. Mm. So, they can uh, have some yeah, they they've, <laughs> they, uh, because they're, they're the ones mining rare earth materials. Right. I said they can have some of ours. We have a lot of it left over <laughs> from our nuclear processes. Well, it's, it's a, yeah, it's a byproduct of rare earth mining. It's just that the regulatory regime in the U.S. means that if you mine something that has radioactive properties, it's now radioactive waste and has to be treated accordingly. All right. Uh, which just basically meant that in the U.S. you don't mine rare earths because it's yeah. the, the <laughs> nuclear regime is just unbelievably difficult to mm -hmm. deal with. Mm -hmm. The Chinese don't care about that. <laughs> but it is interesting that they've shortened their time frame that they want to get one, uh, a thorium uh, molten salt reactor online. It is a molten salt reactor, right? 
they they haven't been specific. They just said thorium nuclear power. The logical one is molten salt. But as we know, because the Norwegians are doing it, it'll run perfectly well as a light water, water reactor, too. Mm. I think it's great. I think it's great that, um, you know, in the near future, every little town could have their own thorium uh, reactor. Well, maybe the near future. Yeah, possibly. Yeah. All right, you guys. <laughs> I'm just gonna, you know, I'm, sit I'm, back. Bob, with my I'm just curious. You know, what was your engagement around space? You're a little bit older than Carl and I, but not by a lot. But was it a Star Trek thing? Was it Apollo 11? Like, what grabbed you? Oh no, I was much younger. Um, I was um, interested in space, probably because I watched Flash Gordon uh, shows on Saturday mornings. Um, and, and God knows it might've been before that. Uh, I was just always a space head from, from, uh, probably age five on maybe before. Uh, so always interested, always wanted to do something with it. Always wanted to read as much as I could about it. I knew, you know, the order of the planets when I was very young, um, it was just a fascination for me. And if we're really going to take on interstellar space flight, I mean, we got to, we're talking about flying spacecraft between stars, which yeah, I'm still not convinced is even practical. <laughs> I don't know how we do that. We're going to have to figure out some way to do that. Um, I don't know how you get tons and tons of material accelerated up to anything like the speed of light, even right. some small fraction. Um, you know, you can talk about blowing up a t hydrogen bombs behind it and and maybe you can get some acceleration that way but you know, the speed of light is really fast well let me ask the question why do we have to do it because they're there damn it why give me one reason why we need to fly between from my star to your star i want to see it yeah <laughs> that's a pretty you know we always want to go over the next horizon Oh, but, wow. I mean, just because some scientists want to do it, then that's the reason to spend billions of dollars on on uh, on doing it? No, well, yeah, yeah. That's the reason we want to do it. We want to see this stuff. There are, you know, how many places are there to go that we have not seen? I, I would put another spin on it, too, actually, Bob, which is... Our ability to do planet finding is getting better and better and better and better. Sooner or later, we are going to be able to image a rocky planet in the Goldilocks zone around another star that's got a nitrox atmosphere. We're going to yep. be able to do chemical composition reads. We're going to know what its density is. We're going to know what orbit it's in. And then we're going to have to sort of show, tell, say to the world, hey, by the way, we think we found another Earth-like planet, and it's, let's go mid-range. Yeah. 40 light years from here. Right. Yeah. Yeah. You know, what I love is that no science fiction has ever done this way. It's always been you fly the spacecraft to the solar system, and then you scan for M-class planets. Yeah. <laughs> right? Where the reality is, we will have images of every planet anywhere in reasonable range long before we can get there. Yeah, you're you're right about that, Richard. Um, I can't um, I can't remember one Star Trek episode where Starfleet from their observatory on Earth said, 
oh, by the way, out in that far-reaching galaxy that, you know, is so far you could never travel to it, watch out for these these guys. They look like they're, uh, you know, like like they have uh, weaponry that's out of your range or something. Yeah, but that's, I think the reality is the speed of light being the speed of light. We're going to have all this imagery long before we can go there. But once we know there's a planet that could fit with an Earth-like planet, we're not going to send people. We're going to have to try and send a spacecraft. Maybe that's what we start with. What would it take to build a spacecraft that could radio back at least? So this was Larry Niven's idea, right? Yeah. From his uh, known space um, anthologies. And he, they sent out thousands of these probes to stars and they found worlds that were livable and they radioed back information. And then from that information, they sent colony ships out. Right. And even Niven was wrong because he never considered the idea we'd actually be able to image those other planets from here. But Yes. So we image it. We now have a map of the planets we want to get to. Now, I don't even want to send a colony ship. I just want to get more detailed data. Let's get closer. Let's actually orbit it. Build the equivalent of a Mariner 6. You know, the 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 little spacecraft from the 70s that orbited Mars first. Let's build a Mariner 6 for the Earth-like planet. And should we pick a number 20 light years away? Why not? 20 light years. All right. How do you get there? How do you get there? Hmm. So. Notice, notice the crickets in the yeah. room. Well, now we right. get to the hard part. So if we talk about uh, Orion. Orion. So Project Orion. Project Orion. Now, this is, this is an old technology, right? This is 1960s. Let's fire small nuclear pulse units out the back of our spacecraft, detonate them so that we have a, nu- we have a nuclear explosion going off behind us with a sh- pusher catcher so that it could absorb that energy and allow it to accelerate ourselves. And I... I think the best version of that, the sort of energy-limited version of that spacecraft, got to one-third the speed of light. Using hydrogen bombs uh, or hydrogen thermonuclear weapons right? um, behind it, and probably tens of thousands of them. Yeah, and uh, I'm just pulling out the notes here. And we are talking about a spacecraft, just, you know, 20 kilometers long, (laughs) weighing 10... Megatons, (laughs) Megatons, <laughs> carrying, uh, that's the empty weight of the ship, with 30 megatons worth of bomb mass. Each megaton bomb weighs a metric ton. And so its total departure mass is 40 million tons. Hmm. And it'll take 100 years to accelerate to its 0.33 speed of light. Good God, man. Yeah. Yes, well, Yeah. And so at that rate of acceleration, because it's so heavy, at that rate of acceleration, it would take, you know, the nearest star is four light years away, Alpha Centauri, 1,300 years to get there. And you couldn't slow down. Because <laughs> you used all your fuel, fuel <laughs> yeah. to accelerate. So speed's yeah. not everything. Like, you, one-third of the speed of light sounds like a good idea. You just can't actually get there. My favorite technology for interstellar yeah. is uh, Bussard Ramjet. You like the ramjet. Well, it, it, because it, the fuel and the reaction mass are already in space. So all you have to do is gather up this ionized hydrogen, fuse it, and spit it out the back of your ship. Right. And the faster you go, the more fuel there is. Although, I mean, you're talking about interstellar hydrogen, so the densities get lower and lower and lower. Like, this has got to be a pretty big spacecraft to collect enough energy. 
well, you have to throw this big magnetic field out, a thousand kilometers in diameter, and you want to be in at really high speeds by the time you get to the places where there's not a lot of hydrogen, so that you're hitting a lot of hydrogen atoms anyway at high speed. Right. Right. And then you could then you've got all the fuel you need, and you can accelerate at one g. And you naturally get more fuel as you get closer to your target destination. Well, yes, because things start getting denser again. Right. But you you accelerate at 1G, uh, and you do that for a year, and you're close to the speed of light. And then it doesn't matter how far away anything is, because relativistic effects will shrink the universe down to any size you'd like it to be. And then you turn the ship around, and you deaccelerate, and you're at your destination. It takes two years to get there. And it doesn't matter where the destination is. Could be could be Alpha Centauri, could be the other side of the galaxy, could be the other side of the universe. It's a two-year trip. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, there's some problems there. You're getting mighty close to infinity to get yeah, those kinds of speeds. There's a few problems. In yeah, a couple like, of problems there. We don't know how to build this fusion generator. We don't know how to send this magnetic field out there. We've got no idea what will happen if we're moving close to the speed of light and you happen to hit a dust moat. It reminds, it reminds me of that far side cartoon where the guy's got all the equations all over the board, and then there's this part in the middle that says, and then a miracle occurs. Yeah. And, the, and well, the professor says, I think you need to be a little more explicit here. At least we know what miracle we'd need. It's good to know what you want. Good fusion generator, good magnetic fields coming out. Uh, some kind of shielding so that the you know starlight doesn't turn into lethal gamma rays, uh, and okay, maybe we could get to another star that way. I like Orion for interplanetary. Right. The Orion ship inside the solar system is a fascinating idea, and it and it makes me crazy that we had these plans laid out in the late fifties and early sixties, uh, and then just dropped it. Because these ships were buildable. We could build these things. We could have a fleet of ships circumnavigating the solar system right now uh, without the ridiculous, you know, mass ratios of 10,000 to 1, right? A a vehicle on the launch pad weighs 10,000 times what the payload weighs. You know, these Orion vehicles had a mass ratio of 2 to 1. Half the mass was fuel. Half the mass is payload. Yeah, so that's just the problem about letting nuclear bombs off in the atmosphere. Yeah, okay. So, you know, you got to blow up a few nukes in the atmosphere, and that's something you'd probably want to control a little bit. <laughs> you know? A little. But, but, you know, we've detonated megatons in the atmosphere. Thousands of megatons in the atmosphere. We're not talking about that now. Uncle Bob, is this what it's like in a software design meeting with you? It sure is. <laughs> <laughs> that's not the right class we have to have different relationships between those classes absolutely <laughs> and then here we all we need is the right miracle but we'll worry about that later miracles are cheap all we have to do is apply ourselves to them we make <laughs> but here's here's one orion where we've just turned it off those miracles could happen. We've turned it off. Yeah. And, and why did we turn this off? Mm. This is uh, a viable a viable option, not just for getting off the planet, but for getting around inside the solar system um, and getting around in ways that 
You know how we got to Jupiter, we went first to Venus and then came back to Earth and then went back to Venus and then shot out to to Jupiter because we were using all these gravitational assists. And that was considered the fast way. That was the fast way, right. That was, well, the energy efficient way. And with an Orion ship, you just kind of point it and go. Like, you know, you probably want to conserve some energy, but you don't have to. If you want to get to Mars in a hurry, you can get to Mars in a hurry. You've got lots of power. And, you know, you, you, this vessel can seat, you know, 60, 60 people. Uh, take a nice crew. It's got, you know, cafeterias on board, maybe a swimming pool. It's a little cruise ship. Take it to Mars. Yeah, we just got to deal with the radioactives. I don't think that's a, a trivial issue. I mean, admittedly, people are excessively sensitive to the topic of anything that involves nuclear detonations. But there is a, a bit of an exhaust trail from this spacecraft. Yes, yes you don't want to stand behind it. Yeah. Vroom. But, so, you, you wouldn't so, want to stand there, Bob. <laughs> Dyson, Dyson did this workup on this a while back, long, long ago. Uh, said, okay, take... Um, Take small thermonuclear devices, hydrogen bombs. You need a tiny little fission device to start it. Surround the whole thing with boron. So you got a ton of boron surrounding it. The boron eat up, eats up all the neutrons. You've got a little bit of tritium pollution and a tiny bit of fissionables. But the, the fissionables are small because all you're trying to do is trigger the, uh, the fusion reaction. So... These problems of radioactive exhaust are mitigatable. You can deal with it. But but we don't even think about it. It's gone. Well, I, I think you, you bring up a salient point, which is the detonation itself. These are based on fairly old, you know, this was old research. And... Uh, um the uh, the design of the bombs weren't were you know n- no hydrogen bomb is actually just fusion it's using fusing to consume more of the heavy radioactive you know there's always some plutonium involved in this and you're yeah, always going to have leftovers yeah there's going to be a little bit of uranium or plutonium yeah. to trigger it but you know most of the yield is in fusion and then the fusion burning is relatively clean except for the neutrons and you can catch the neutrons with a blanket. Yes. So, you know, obviously there are engineering difficulties here. What what bothers me about it is a social thing. Yeah. Um, we have lost this. Uh, it's not even on our radars. No one's thinking about it. And it's a, a feasible technology. So that bothers me. It's the same thing with nuclear power plants. I mean, we we are terrified of these things, and yet we absolutely need them, and we need them in, in the thousands. <laughs> yeah, and we're gonna and we're resisting doing All it. All the environmentalists about just it. turned us off, right? Well, you know, you get to this place where it's just like, we, are you waiting for the lights to turn off? Like, what? Well, what? At what point do we have to do something about it? Because you can't build these things fast. It does yeah. take a while. They take a while. And so I, I, you know, I go to Norway quite a bit and, um, there they, uh, I don't know what, what tax you pay for a car. It's some horrible number. It's almost like a, a car's value itself because they, they don't want a lot of cars there. And, and then if you, if you get an electric car, you don't have to pay that tax. And, and I believe you can charge it for free. 
there are charging stations where you can go to charge it for free. So everybody buys electric cars, uh, which, okay, fine. In Norway, they've got lots of hydroelectric power. But can you imagine what would happen if everybody in the United States had an electric car? You run out of electricity in a big hurry. <laughs> the grid the grid is probably not designed for that. And and what do we do? We're going to have to build nuclear power plants. Right, more power. If, if we're going to get off of fossil fuels, we're going to have to build nuclear power plants. And a lot of them. Yeah. We have, um, what, 4 billion people in the world who are um, have a low standard of living, I'll put it gently. And those 4 billion would like to have a high standard of living. And what that means is energy, because energy is wealth. Yep. And that, you know, we're not going to stop them. They're not going to be stopped. They're going to get that energy. They're going to get that wealth one way or the other. And that means we're going to need a lot of generation capacity. This is a problem we have to solve. And it's not going to be solved with solar and wind as easily as some folks think. Right? We're going to well, have they, to Yeah, they, that, that stuff takes up a lot of room. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We're not going to take over Texas and try and, and lay out solar cells there. Yeah. Hey, uh, Richard. Yes, sir. You know what time it is? Ah, uh, it must be that happy time again. You got it. It's time for me to turn up the heavy metals, wrap my neutrons in a hot blanket, and expel <laughs> an exhaust stream so deadly and hellacious it'll kill everything in a 50-mile radius. <laughs> You've been eating beans again. <laughs> yeah, well, <laughs> Wendy's chili. Nice. Comes with fingers. <laughs> anyway... It's time to give away a DevExpress D-Experience subscription to one Ooh. lucky member of the .NET Rocks fan club. But before I tell you who the winner is today, let me tell you about the D-Experience subscription. You can become a UI superhero with DevExpress UI controls and libraries and deliver elegant .NET solutions that address customer needs today and leverage your existing knowledge to build next-generation touch-enabled solutions for tomorrow. Whether it's an Office-inspired application or a data-centric analytics dashboard, DevExpress Universal ships with everything you need to build your best without limits or compromise. Learn more and download your free 30-day trial at devexpress.com slash superhero. Check it out. Don't forget to thank them for supporting .NET Rocks. Awesome. So who's our winner, buddy? Today's winner is Dan Rowlands. Congratulations, Dan. Golf clap for you, sir. Just for being a member of the .NET Rocks fan club, Dan just won that $2,000 value from DevExpress. And if you don't know what we're talking about, go to .netrocks.com, click on the big Get Free Stuff button, answer a few questions, and join the fan club. We have thousands of members all over the world. We give away stuff in every show, and every December we give away $5,000 of technology to one lucky member of the fan club, Bob Martin. If you had five grand to spend today, like, let's go shopping right now for technology, what would you buy? Me? Yeah. LED light bulbs. Yeah. Yeah, no, I've, I've been buying these things uh, and sticking them in the, in my house. I think I need a couple of hundred of them, uh, but they're just so cool. They don't get hot. They light up really bright. They don't get hot. They're like one-tenth the power consumption. You know what you need? Lumen Cash. <laughs> Go What's to Lumen Cash? Check out Lumen Cash on the web. We did a, a DC Power Geek Out, and Lumen Cash is a company that converts AC to DC in one place, and then you can run low-power Cat5 to all of your LED lights 
instead of running AC and then doing transformers at each light. Uh, it's wonderful. Whoa. Yeah. You do that with Cat5. Yeah, Cat5, yeah. so you don't need a license. Whoa. Yeah. Right through the walls and everything. Exactly. And, and they make these lights for it, too. Lumencash.com. Right. They, they show how to convert regular LED lights that run off AC directly into their system, as well as the ones they make themselves. And they're even smaller and lighter and more power efficient, and they dim better. It's really, really interesting. But I, I mean, I've been wiring my whole house, uh, replaced all my MR16s with uh, mostly Sora, S-O-R-A-A LED bulbs. And uh, yeah, the power d- decrease has been substantial. Oh, yeah. yeah. Well, I, I get like a factor of 10 just by replacing the 110 bulbs. But this sounds like you get a lot more. What? What is it? Five volt? It's 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 thirty actually. The LED, 30 the, nor- the normal LED drivers, it's actually between twenty five and thirty. Pretty cool. I'll be darned. Yeah, that sounds really cool. interesting stuff. And besides, uh, because it's Cat Five, you can of course have a data stream, so you can uh, do intelligent lighting effects and things like that. Now, Why don't you note inside your light bulbs? Isn't that neat? Yeah. Okay, I want to jump back into this, and I want to take a slightly different tact. Uh, and I'm going to tap David Brin, the author, for one of my favorite science fiction books in recent times, a book called Existence. And I'm going to give a little bit away of the book, but I still highly encourage people to read it. But in there, the the aliens have done interstellar spaceflight by making their spacecraft super small and lightweight because it's not actually carrying people, just technology. And they accelerate it by putting the engine in a fixed location in the form of a laser. So they're basically firing a laser pinpoint accuracy on the back of this uh, object that can handle the ablation to accelerate it up to very high speeds. Yep. And now, I mean, this is interesting because now you get rid of a lot of mass, get the thing light, you're no longer carrying the engine. And once you get, you know, closer to where you're trying to go, you can get closer. I mean, like I'm just thinking about... The original concept here. So we now have an image of an Earth-like planet orbiting another star. We want more information on it. This, to me, seems feasible. Something in the 100 kilo range of a spacecraft that we accelerate with a fixed engine to make a flyby on now, that, he, uh, that other planet. Did he, uh, did he say that was ablative or was it a sail? It was ablative. Okay. What's the difference? What are you guys talking about? Fill me in here. So an ablative one is where you heat up the back end of it and it vaporizes, and then that gives you your reaction thrust. And a sail is where you put a sail, a big, big sheet of plastic out in front of it, and the light the light carries momentum, so it acts like a wind. So you're pressing against photons. Yes, right. Photons carry momentum. So um, let's see, Robert Forward came up with an idea for a laser-driven sail, uh, which was kind of a cool idea. You'd have to build the uh, laser uh, around Mercury and set up a lot of um, really heavy-duty solar collectors there right? and fire this really powerful laser beam at this ship and keep it focused on the ship for a few centuries. But you could accelerate it as fast as you want it to go. Yeah. Now, the downside of not taking slow, the engine with you is you don't get to use it going the other way. Well, so... Uh, Forward's idea was that the sail comes in two components. It's uh, a donut with a a hole in the middle, and you fill up the hole on the way out. So you've got the full sail on the way out. And then at the halfway point, 
you release the outer ring. It just floats forward and it gets ahead of you and you focus the beam on the ring, which focuses the, which reflects the beam back to the ship. And you turn the ship around and catch the reflected beam in your smaller donut hole and you decelerate. Interesting. Yeah. So that I don't want to ride on that ship. <laughs> yeah, neither do I. That, that sounds a lot worse than, you know, landing on Mars uh, with this crane that fires jets at the last minute and then lowers the, the rover down on pulleys. That was nutty enough. This one sounds worse. Well, and, and I'm not even talking about sending people. We didn't send a people with the sky crane per- approach either. We just sent a pickup truck. <laughs> yeah. But, uh, yeah. you know, it, it, it gets back to, I'm trying to avoid unobtainium. I'm trying <laughs> to avoid nuclear power for its various issues or nuclear detonations. Uh, and trying to, I, I, one of the things I like about the stable engine approach is that it encourages you to build more and more spacecraft with it. Like we go to the trouble to build a really high powered laser in orbit that, or, you know, at L5 so that we can keep reusing it. Then, then you, you decrease the recurring cost of building spacecraft. Yes. Yes. Uh, cause you put all your capital into the, into the propulsion system, <laughs> which is a fixed asset. So yeah, so now you really want to build lots of them because you've got to pay for this thing over time. Yeah, and the, and the more things it has to push against, the better off you are. And we went there with the uh, with the asteroid mining show where we said, now you know you can use these recycler orbits for Mars. You put six spacecraft going one way, six going the other way, and you've got flights back and forth to Mars every six months. But you need twelve spacecraft, so you better build one big engine so that it can do accelerations for you. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, and you could use the laser. Well, I don't know if you could use the laser for that one because the distances are pretty short. Maybe you could. Yeah, it, it's an interesting. You know, every and every engine you can find that is energy efficient is very low thrust, high ISP, but low thrust. And any engine that has high thrust is, relatively speaking, low ISP. Now I wonder. I haven't read anything about this, but I wonder if you could use a. Uh, a nuclear-powered ion engine for reasonable interstellar travel. Well, that's the Vasimir engine, in my mind. It's the closest thing we've got to an engine that that almost does both. It's still relatively low thrust. It's very high ISP. Yeah. But it's much higher thrust than any other uh, uh, magnetoplasma rocket. And it's a mature enough that they're actually planning on putting a couple of them on the space station for station keeping. Oh, just like Ringworld. Yeah, but you, you, you know, maybe a little smaller. You know, a little smaller than not these obscure yet. references you guys have that I have no idea what you're talking about. <laughs> yeah, pull us back, Carl. Whatever you want to find, we wanted to find it. Go ahead. You. What's Ringworld? What's Ringworld? <laughs> Larry Niven wrote a novel long ago called Ringworld, where okay. they. The, uh, uh, they found this ring around a star uh, at uh, with a radius of about one astronomical unit. So this ring is as far away from the star as Our the Earth is. Earth, yeah. uh, the inhabitants live on the inside of the ring, and the ring spins to give it artificial gravity. It's kind of like uh, a Dyson it, sphere? It, well, except it's a Dyson ring. Dyson ring. Right. But the same idea. Um, and we, and you don't need a gravity generator. So it solves that particular problem. Still tremendous amount of surface area. Pretty cool. Uh, and the problem with a, a ring like that, a spinning ring, is that it's not in orbit, so it's not stable. Mm-hmm. It'll drift 
relate relative to the star. So you need station keeping engines on it. And he he outfitted it with Bussard ramjets in his second book. Mm-hmm. After the uh, a bunch of geeks showed him that in the first book it would be unstable. Hmm. And so yeah, I mean Niven Niven always made great worlds and mediocre characters. As opposed to <laughs> Purnell, who made great characters in mediocre worlds, which is what the two of those guys got together. Those books it are freaking magic. great. Magic. Those two guys together were magic. We're magical. But uh, but the thing about the idea of filling the entire orbit of the Earth with a livable surface, like you have so much more land all of a sudden. It's crazy. If you did exactly that, so now you got a 600 million mile circumference uh orbit this land you're talking about three million earths worth of land it's a lot like that whole population problem you had yeah it's gonna be a while before you see it all on the other hand the amount of matter necessary to fill the earth's orbit with matter that's an interesting problem too Hmm. yeah it comes out to be uh pretty much all the mass in the solar system yeah so we got to somehow mine Jupiter for all of its mass to build this thing. Oh, and all the other planets and the asteroid belt yeah. and the Oort cloud. Huh. And then you get uh, six feet in thickness, uh, a million miles wide and 600 million miles in diameter. Are you, guys, are you guys proud of me? I went through this whole show without saying the word Uranus. Ha, 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 that's the I name know of I'm the proud planet. of you, Carl. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> I had plenty of opportunities to make a joke, you know, like most people do. And I didn't. I didn't go there because you know what? I've got class. You're bigger, better than I'm that. I'm a bigger person than that. Nice. Uranus. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, I'm super excited about the Vasmir engine. They, the, 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 the VF200, which showed the most mature model, that's the one they want to take the space station, is a pair of 100 kilowatt thruster units. And, uh, it, uh, it's a zero torque magnetic quadrupole. Like it's what they're doing there is magical. It's an ion engine with some significant thrust, but you're talking about ISPs in the realms of, of 5,000 rather than, you know, a normal rocket engine, which is 400 and actually thrusts to the tune of like five Newtons, where a typical ion engine is like one tenth of a Newton. Yeah. So yeah, is it if you strap enough of these onto a rocket, you could, or onto a spacecraft, you could actually have some real acceleration. Is it xenon? Uh, argon. Argon. Okay. Yeah, you got to find some inert gas to accelerate to some high speed. Absolutely. Uh, that's fascinating. Huh. So now, what's your take on um, rail guns? Big long rail guns to fire things into orbit. Well, and and I I like them a lot as long as whatever you're doing can tolerate the acceleration. Okay, now just to, I I get what you're saying and what a rail gun is. I guess a gun to fire things into orbit, but explain a little bit more about what that is and how it works. One so you you, t- you take a big linear accelerator, um, three hundred kilometers long. You power it with a few good sized nuclear power plants and a lot of good capacitors. <laughs> uh, and then you take um, magnetic um, objects, capsules, and you accelerate them out the end to um, oh, probably 25,000 miles an hour or so and shoot them, right? So you want this thing climbing up the side of a mountain, build it on the equator, uh, and fire these 
capsules into orbit. Standing near the output of that thing would be um, pretty interesting. Uh, can what you're firing take the stress of that much for, um, pressure? Force? So the, the, if you've got it 300 kilometers long, um, the acceleration is about 3 Gs until you get to the opening. And then all of a sudden you've got the atmosphere and the atmosphere will decelerate you at, at something much larger than 3 Gs. Right. And you have to have enough velocity to tolerate that deceleration. Uh, and at that point you're glowing white hot and tearing through the atmosphere at, at hypersonic velocity. The thunder would be enormous. It would look like this beam of lightning shooting out through the sky. Um, but I mean, how cool is that? <laughs> Except for that part where we all die. It's awesome. <laughs> all right, let's go another direction on solving this using the, the so the clearly don't put the mass accelerator on the planet, put it on the moon. Yes, sure. Right? So now we use a space elevator, which is no longer an obtainium. I think we get the materials. We just don't know how to manufacture it yet to get out of Earth's orbit. We fly a nice lightweight tug up to the up to the moon. The moon's got the accelerator for the long range spacecraft. It'll fire you wherever you want to go. So you get no atmospheric effects anymore. Still, the question is, given given we build a rail gun that goes all the way around the circumference of the moon and you accelerate it 3 Gs, that's still a minuscule fraction of the speed of light. Oh, yeah, yeah. It's good for uh, interplanetary. It's not good for, for interstellar. interstellar. I mean, is there anything we're really getting from this show other than just a recognition that interstellar spaceflight is virtually impossible? And expensive. Well, unless we do the negative energy trick and, and expand space behind us and shrink space in front of us. Right. So back yeah. to we have to get to science that we don't have yet. I don't want to, and I don't even want to say unobtainium because the latest readings coming out of uh, out of uh, Bicep two, where we've actually proven gravity waves exist, speak to the possibility that negative energy exists. Yes. Well, relative negative energy certainly exists. Well, certain is a rel- is a tough concept, Bob. Nobody's what? actually put any in a bottle yet. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, um, oh, well, yeah. Uh, the you know, there's a little bit of negative energy between the plates of the Casimir experiment, right? It's where you you take two plates and you get them really close together, and then the energy density between those two plates is actually lower than the vacuum energy, right? So you can create you know little tiny bits of ne- a very minimal negative energy, and it you know that's very interesting. Now, can you create a lot of it? Can you use it to expand space? Can you can you create enough energy density to contract space in front of you? Uh, fascinating ideas. And where does dark energy come into this? Do we even know what that is? No, no clue. Could <laughs> it be negative? Could it be potential negative energy? You know, it could be any damn thing you want it to be right now. Right. You haven't got any idea what dark energy is, except that it's 70% of the universe. Yeah. Yeah. According to the current cosmological model, the most dominant energy in the universe is the one we know nothing about. Absolutely. Yeah. That's a good feeling. Yeah. I feel great about it. And (laughs) And the problem is we're not getting further away from it and disproving it. We're getting closer to proving it, which is disturbing too. I got a good buddy who's, um, who's down in the mines of Minnesota looking for dark matter. Nice. And coming up with zero. There's a lot of dark matter in the mine. <laughs> nice. <laughs> no clue. No clue what this stuff is. Right? It's great. We have mysteries to solve. Yep. We're, and, and we're starting to solve them again. It seemed like we lost momentum for a while there, but yeah, we've had a pretty good time with it. I'm excited. I'm excited. 
Uh, I I guess I'm excited. I'm, <laughs> I, sounds good to me. I, you know, the th- it's it's fun uh, thought experiment. The thing that I keep coming back to is just the practicality of a lot of this stuff. You know, like people are, we have these ideas of terraforming Mars and going to Mars and stuff. And I'm like, how about terraforming Earth first? You know, well, we do a great job of that, just the wrong direction, just in the wrong direction, right? You know, this the, the money that is required to do that. You know, whereas we just we we're not even willing to spend that on cleaning up our own planet. We're gonna go to another planet and start yeah, over. The, yeah, yeah. The pressure is going to be on in the next ten years when we find that rocky planet. That's where the pressure is going to be on. Yeah. Yeah, you may be right, Richard. I hold out hope for a profit motive in the in the outer solar system. I'm Possibly. with you. And mm-hmm. asteroid mining. That yeah, whole asteroid piece is mining, all part of that. hydrogen mining, water mining. There's a lot of volatiles out there. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you know, but if we find hunks of gold flying around out there and bring it back to Earth, how precious is it? Not that Better precious. gold. We could get a lot of deuterium out there. Yeah, that's more valuable. Or unobtainium. Yeah, well, <laughs> we'll find that one day. And then it'll be obtainium. Yeah, well. <laughs> <laughs> it'll be go get him. <laughs> Come and get it. Um. All right, well, it's always fun hanging out with you, Bob. Oh, yeah. Bunch of... <laughs> Geeking away. Geeking away. And uh, I guess we'll see you in Oslo. Um, well, I, I, I think so. Yeah, we'll probably be there. We haven't yeah. finalized anything, but I'm pretty sure we'll be there. Yeah, well, I think I will too. All right. <laughs> Thanks, guys. Thanks, Richard. It's you always bet, fun listening to you talk. <laughs> All right. We'll see you next time on .NET Rocks. .NET Rocks is brought to you by Franklin's Net and produced by Pwop Studios, a full-service audio, video, and post-production facility located physically in New London, Connecticut, and, of course, in the cloud. Online at pwop.com. Visit our website at dotnetrocks.com for RSS feeds, downloads, mobile apps, comments, and access to the full archives going back to show number one, recorded in September 2002. And make sure you check out our sponsors. They keep us in business. Now go write some code. See you next time. Got a transmitter van.